This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Soraya was a high school student and her school was preparing for a very special visitor. The leader of her country was coming to her school. Everyone was so excited and honoured that their supreme leader had chosen their school to visit. But little did Soraya know that this visit would forever change her life. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Harem. Soraya was a schoolgirl living in the African country of Libya. What happened to her? First, a warning that this story involves sexual assault. In the year 1989, a girl was born in the African country of Libya. Her name was Soraya. Her mother was from Morocco and had lived in Paris, where she had worked as a hairdresser. It was there that she met and married her husband, and together they moved to Libya, where Soraya's father was from. The family had five sons and two daughters. Soraya's mother found her new life in Libya to be in stark contrast to her life in Paris. She had to wear veils and clothing to cover her body, and she no longer had the freedoms that she had been used to. Libyan women were rarely allowed out on their own, and there were strict rules about where they could go and who they could see. A woman on her own was looked at suspiciously. People would wonder, what is she doing outside? Is she having an affair? So while Soraya's mother found it difficult to adjust to life in Libya, it was the opening of her own hairdresser salon which gave her some comfort and joy. The family then moved to the city of Sirte, which was the birthplace of Libya's leader, Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi had seized control of Libya in 1969 during a military coup, and he would come to be known worldwide as an authoritarian dictator who committed numerous human rights violations. However, in his own country, he was revered. At Soraya's school, Gaddafi's image was everywhere. Each morning, they would sing the national anthem in front of his image and chant, You are our guide. We walk behind you. The students called him Papa Muammar, and he was widely worshipped both in Libya and other African countries. Soraya would often help her mother at her salon after school, which she loved. However, it catered only for the wealthy, and the average Libyan woman was forbidden to use its services. When the town held important political summits, the wives of the delegates would come into the salon. Soraya's mother soon developed a good reputation, and she was even called to Gaddafi's compound to attend to his wife. Gaddafi also had various servants and aides who also attended the salon. On one particular day, Soraya was helping in the salon and she asked a lady what she wanted done with her hair. The lady did not take too kindly to a young girl doing her hair and she said to Soraya, And who exactly are you to be addressing me? On another occasion, one of Gaddafi's elegant ladies came into the salon and Soraya noticed how well-dressed she was. Soraya said to her, how beautiful you are. The lady then promptly slapped Soraya on the face. In another incident, one of Gaddafi's women booked the entire salon for her wedding. However, she had to cancel the booking at very short notice. For this reason, Soraya's mother declined to refund her deposit. The woman was outraged, and some time later, a group of Gaddafi's women came and wrecked the salon. Due to the power and influence that Gaddafi exerted, the salon was forced to close for a number of months. Then it was when Soraya was 15 that a very important event was to happen at her school. The school principal addressed the students and said, The guide is doing us a great honour of paying us a visit tomorrow. This is a thrill for the entire school, so I am counting on you to be on time, to be orderly and to be well-dressed. 
you are to present the image of a magnificent school the way he likes it and the way he deserves to see it. Everyone was in bewilderment that their great leader was coming to their school. Gaddafi's image could be seen everywhere. City walls, on t-shirts, necklaces, even banknotes. On the day of his visit, Soraya made sure to dress in her best clothes. When she got to school, a teacher told her that the principal wanted to see her. Soraya was unsure why, as this usually only happened when someone had done something unfavourable. The principal told her that she had been chosen to present the guide with flowers and gifts. She was overwhelmed, but also wondered why she had been chosen to do such a privileged task. Soraya was taken into a room with other girls who had also been chosen. They were given traditional Libyan dresses to wear, and their hair was carefully groomed. They were then given bouquets of flowers and were taken to the front entrance of the school auditorium, which was packed with teachers, students and administrators. Soraya was shaking in anticipation of meeting their esteemed leader. And then the moment arrived. He entered the building surrounded by many people, including female bodyguards. Soraya thought she was in a dream. The supreme guide was standing in front of her. She gave him the bouquet and then took his other hand in hers and kissed it. She then felt him squeezing her hand and he then put his hand on her head and patted her hair. She would find out later what this gesture would mean. After school finished that day, she ran home and said to her mother excitedly, Papa Muamar smiled at me, Mama. I swear it. He patted my head. But she wasn't ready for her mother's reply, who said, Don't make such a big deal of it. Soraya replied, But really, Mama, he's the leader of Libya. That's not just anything. The next day after Gaddafi's visit, three of his women came into the salon. Two were dressed normally, but the other was wearing a bodyguard uniform and had a gun on her belt. Her name was Mabruka, and she said the following to Soraya's mother. We belong to the Committee of the Revolution and were with Muammar yesterday morning when he visited the school. Soraya caught his attention. She looked superb in her traditional dress and conducted herself beautifully. The committee wishes for her to present another bouquet to Papa Muammar, so she is to come with us immediately. Soraya was just beside herself. She couldn't believe that she was again given the honour to meet with Gaddafi. She was driven through the desert, and they arrived at an encampment where there were several tents and a very large camper van. She was led inside where she saw Gaddafi sitting on a chair. He extended his hand and she kissed it. Then he addressed Mabruka, the female bodyguard, saying, Get her ready. Mabruka took Soraya to another room and asked for her measurements so that they could dress her. But Soraya didn't know her measurements, so the women measured various parts of her body using a measuring tape. Then all the women left, leaving her on her own. Soraya was thinking, I remained all alone. Night was falling. What would Mama think? Had they alerted her to the delay? What was going to happen here? And how would I be getting home? Then Soraya was taken to another room by a nurse, who took some of her blood. Mabruka then led her into a bathroom and said, Get undressed. You're hairy. We need to get rid of all of that. We're leaving the pubic hair. Soraya's arms and legs were then shaved. Mabruka added, We're going to dress you properly. Put makeup on, and then you'll be able to see Papa Muammar. But Soraya was wondering when she would be going home. And when she asked Mabruka, her reply was, Later, first you have to greet your master. Soraya was then given a satin dress to wear. She noticed it had slits at the sides and a low cut at the front and back. It was something she had never seen before, but before putting on the dress, they gave her a G-string. She did not know what it was or how to put it on. The women dressed her, and then they did her hair and makeup. When finished, they led Soraya into Gaddafi's room, and she was immediately terrified at what she saw and quickly covered her eyes. He was laying on his bed naked. Soraya tried to leave the room, but Mabruka grabbed her arm and led her over to him. She didn't want to look at him, and that's when he said to her, Turn around, you whore. 
Sarai didn't know what that word meant, but sensed that it was an awful word. Gaddafi said to her, Don't be afraid. I am your papa. That's what you call me. I am your brother as well, and soon I'll be your lover. I'll be all of that to you, because you're going to stay here and be with me forever. He then grabbed her and started kissing her, but Soraya resisted. He tried laying on top of her, but she screamed and started crying. Mabruka then entered the room, and he said to her, Look at this whore. She refuses to do what I want. Teach her, educate her, and then bring her back to me. Soraya was taken out of the room and scolded. Mabruka said to her, How dare you behave like that with your master? It is your duty to obey him. Soraya sobbed and said, I want to go home. But Mabruka replied, You're not budging. Your place is here. Obey, or else Muamar will make you pay for it very dearly. Soraya kept crying, and Mabruka slapped her while saying, You pretend you're an innocent little girl, you hypocrite, but you know perfectly well what's going on. From now on, you will listen to us, to Papa Muamar and to me, and you will do what we tell you to do, without a word of complaint, you understand? Soraya was then left alone to contemplate what was happening to her. She remembers thinking, I was left alone in that flimsy little dress, my makeup smudged and my hair all over the place. I curled up in a ball in the living room and cried for hours. I didn't understand a thing. What was I doing here? What did they want from me? I thought about how Mama must be worried to death. Soraya somehow managed to eventually fall asleep. The next morning, Mabruka came in and woke her. Soraya again asked when she was going home. Mabruka replied, Your old life is finished once and for all. Your parents have been told and they understand. So why can't you? I'm going to make some things clear to you. Muamar is going to sleep with you. He's going to open you. From here on in, you will be his possession and you'll never leave him. So stop making that face. It's no use resisting or wishing things were different. That won't change anything here. Then another lady came in to see her and gave her some food to eat, saying to her, Let them do what they want with you. That'll make it a lot easier. If you don't resist, you'll be fine. You just have to do everything that's asked of you. Soraya began sobbing again, wondering what she had done wrong to deserve this kind of treatment. Later in the day, Mabruka returned and gave her another dress to wear, saying, This time you'll satisfy your master's desires or else I'll kill you. She was again led into his room where she saw him smoking a cigarette. He said to her, You're a whore. Sit down close to me. You're going to do everything I ask you to do. I'll give you jewellery and a beautiful home. I'll teach you how to drive and give you a car. One day you may even be able to study abroad if you want. I will take you wherever you want to go. Do you hear what I'm saying? Your every wish will be fulfilled. But Sarai began crying and saying she wanted to go home. He raised his voice saying, Listen to me carefully. Stop that, you hear? Stop that business about going home. From now on, you'll be here with me, and you must forget everything else. He ordered her to take her clothes off, but she refused and struggled against his advances. He then shouted for Mabruka, who came into the room. He said to her, This is the first time any girl has resisted me like this. It's your fault, Mabruka. I told you to teach her. So get it done, or you'll pay the price. Mabruka said, my master, forget this girl. She is stubborn as a mule. We'll throw her back to her mother and I'll find you others. To which Gaddafi replied, No, get this one ready. It's her I want. Soraya was at a total loss as to what was happening. I was trying to find an explanation for what I was going through. What had they told my parents? Surely not the truth. That wasn't possible. Papa didn't even let me go to the neighbours and always told me to be home before dark. So what was he thinking? What explanation had they given to my school when I didn't show up? The next day, Mabruka instructed her to wear a khaki uniform, like the ones the female bodyguards wore, and she was let into another room where there were other girls wearing the same uniform. They all then left in vehicles. They arrived at one of Gaddafi's compounds, and each of the girls were assigned rooms. Soraya shared a room with one of the bodyguards, 
named Farida, who was 23 years old. She told Soraya to shower and put on the clothes that she gave her. And then Soraya's worst fear was confirmed when she was again led into Gaddafi's room. He motioned to her, Come here, my little whore. Come on, don't be afraid. Soraya recalls what happened next. I will never forget that moment. He violated my body, but he pierced my soul with a dagger. The blade never came out. It was the first of many violations Soraya was to endure, and he would also command her to dance in front of him, while he said, Go on, dance, you whore, dance. Keep going, you slut. He also forced her to smoke and drink whiskey, but this confused Soraya, as the Quran forbade the drinking of alcohol. She recalled that Gaddafi was always portrayed as a deeply religious man, but now she was slowly realising that he was nothing but a sham. Next, the group were driven to Gaddafi's main residence in the city of Tripoli. Soraya noted that it was a huge fortified compound with soldiers positioned everywhere. She was overawed by the lavish opulence of the buildings. Then one of the girls led her to a room which had a TV and a DVD player. The DVDs were porn. The girl said, Here's some porn. Watch it carefully and learn. Your master will be furious if you're not up to snuff. This is your homework. Later he called her again, saying, Did you watch the films, you slut? Now you ought to know what to do. As well as forcing her to smoke and drink alcohol, Soraya watched as he put a fine white powder on a business card, rolled it up and then snorted it. He then forced her to do the same. Of course, she didn't know that it was cocaine. Later that day, a group of boys arrived at the house. Soraya was led into Gaddafi's room where an awful scene confronted her. She saw that some of the boys were dressed up as girls and they were dancing to music while Gaddafi was raping one of the boys. Soraya's life became one of frequent rapes, being forced to watch other girls and boys being raped and consuming alcohol, cigarettes and cocaine. She soon became like the other girls, voluntarily smoking and drinking to lessen the reality of what their lives had become. She even became aware that Gaddafi would snort cocaine before any meetings with important people or when giving public speeches. She totally loathed this hypocrisy and wished that everyone would come to know him as she did. Then one day, quite unexpectedly, Mabruka told Soraya something which came as such a surprise to her, as Mabruka had usually always treated her so harshly. She was going to allow her to visit her family. Although the visit was only brief, Soraya hugged and kissed her mother as she said, They told me that Gaddafi took your virginity. My little girl, my little girl, you're too young to become a woman. Soraya often wondered about the porn videos that she was forced to watch and compared them to what she was subjected to. She remembers thinking, The little I knew about sex was nothing but violence, horror, domination, cruelty and sadism. It was a torture session and always with the same assailant. I couldn't even imagine it might be otherwise, but the actresses in the video weren't playing the roles of slaves or victims. They were even developing ways to have sex they seemed to appreciate as much as their partners did. It was odd and intriguing. As a young girl, Soraya knew nothing about how girls developed into women, about puberty, female sexuality, etc., as this was not discussed in Libyan culture. So when she first started her period, it gave her great alarm. As was customary in Libya, mothers did not discuss these matters with their daughters. It was only while at the compound that she learned what it meant to become pregnant. She once told the nurses that she was worried about getting pregnant, but they told her not to worry as the guide was given injections that made him infertile. During her time with Gaddafi, there were many occasions when she would see him host dignitaries, heads of state and journalists at his residence. Soraya would see the wives and daughters go into his room and come out with their hair messy, and she had no doubt as to what was happening. 
The French president at the time was Nicolas Sarkozy, and Soraya recalls seeing his wife go into the guide's room. Once she even saw the former UK PM, Tony Blair, come out of his camper. She remembers wondering if these world leaders knew what was happening behind closed doors, and if so, she was appalled that they would offer up their own daughters and wives to him. Then one day, Soraya started experiencing something that she had never experienced before. One of the guards at the compound started saying nice things to her and giving her compliments. It was the first time that anybody had said anything nice to her since she'd been there. His name was Jalal and he even told her one day unexpectedly that he loved her and wanted to marry her. He even went to the guide to tell him that he wanted to marry her. The guide's response was, so you're claiming to be in love, are you? And you have the nerve to tell me about it, your master. To Soraya, he said, how would you even dare love someone else, you whore? Soraya was also chastised by Mabruka, who said, you rotten wench, you're thinking of marriage when you haven't even been here for three years. You're obviously nothing but trash. Soraya's days at the compound turned into weeks, months, and then years. She seemed to have resigned herself to the fact that this was now her life. She no longer cried or longed to go home and endured the violations without struggle. She learnt, just as all the girls did, that it was best to totally submit. It also became normal for them to travel with Gaddafi and his entourage on his official trips around Libya. But one year, they also embarked on an extended tour of Africa, visiting various countries where they got to see just how widespread Gaddafi's appeal was. During this trip, some of the women attending wore blue uniforms, which signified that they were the soldiers of his real special forces, while Soraya and his girls wore khaki, which meant that they were the fake soldiers. Everywhere they went, they were greeted with excited crowds, and Soraya could not believe how much he was adored. She thought, if only they knew him how she knew him. Then one night, some of his entourage went to a nightclub, and Soraya was also allowed to go. Everyone was smoking and drinking, and this too was now normal for her to do, which she knows would have appalled her parents. Jalal, the guard, was also there, and he told her she shouldn't drink. Soraya loved that someone actually cared for her, and they exchanged a kiss. One of the places that they visited was a huge stadium where everyone cheered and sang Gaddafi's praises. Groups of women tried to get close to him and touch him, but all that Soraya could think was, you poor things, you'd better not be noticed. He is a dangerous man. Soraya was enjoying the African tour as it allowed her to be away from the dreary compound and she was seeing places and doing things that she had never done before. The guide was always busy and had many girls at his choosing, so Soraya had somewhat of a reprieve. It was while she was talking with some of the girls that they told her how they would escape his advances by saying that they had their periods when they didn't. But they also told her to be very careful as his women would often check. They also told her that they had one way around this, by putting some red lipstick on a pad. So Soraya tried this, and when one of the women came to collect her for the guide, she said that she had her period. The woman checked and was seemingly fooled. Later that day, Soraya then enjoyed some time swimming in the hotel pool, while there was music playing and everyone was drinking. However, the same woman saw her in the pool and yelled at her, Liar, you're supposed to have your period. She was then taken to the guide who beat and spat at her. After the African tour finished, they all returned home and Soraya was summoned to the guide again. But it wasn't what she was expecting. He said to her, I don't want you anymore, you slut. I'm going to have you join the Revolutionary Guards. You'll be living with them, so get lost. Mabruka gave her a cell phone, which came as a shock. She saw how some of the other girls had them and how they were free to use them and to speak 
with whoever they wanted. She had always wondered why some girls had them, but some didn't. Soraya finally came to realise that the phones were given to the girls he didn't want anymore or had become too old. The first person she called was her mother. She asked Mabruka if her mother could come and visit, which Mabruka surprisingly agreed to. When they finally saw each other, they embraced and Soraya broke down crying. But sadly, the visit was short-lived and her mother was told to leave. After being banished by the guide, Soraya would have been hopeful that life could be better for her. But although she was free from his constant shackles, the abuse didn't stop. It was just less frequent. She really didn't feel like escaping, as she had dreamed of so many times. She didn't feel like she had a life to look forward to, so why escape? No man would want her. She would be viewed as a whore, so she was resigned to living at the compound. But then a surprising turn of events happened. Soraya was out one day with one of the women when she saw a man on the street. They exchanged looks and Soraya felt an instant feeling of attraction towards him. But it was a fleeting moment and they returned to the compound. A few days later, they ran into each other again. And this time, Soraya didn't let the moment get away and she asked for his phone number. His name was Hisham. They talked for a while. But then the conversation changed tone when he asked her, what do you do in life? And how could she even answer this question with honesty? She couldn't. Instead, she burst out crying and hung up. She was now 18 years old and had spent three years of her life as a prisoner. Some of her friends had graduated and were going to university. Some had got married. But here she was with no life and nothing to look forward to. The next time the guide called for her, the ordeal was particularly brutal, as if what had come before could ever be surpassed. He also forced her to snort cocaine and her nose started bleeding. Eventually, her body couldn't take any more and she passed out. When Soraya finally awoke, she was wearing an oxygen mask and the nurses were looking after her with looks of concern on their faces. She spent the next two days in bed unable to stand up. The next time she was summoned to the guide, he chastised her for telling them he had given her cocaine. She said she hadn't, that they must have figured it out by themselves, but her protests fell on deaf ears. Despite having been so sick in those last few days, he raped her viciously again. But it seems that one of the women at the compound was sympathetic to all that Soraya had endured in those few days, and she told her that she would take her to visit her own family. Soraya was thrilled to be leaving the compound, if only for a short time. During the visit, she was so in awe of seeing a normal, loving family doing the things that families do together, something now that was only a distant memory to her. That night, they went out to a party where there was alcohol and drugs readily available. And it was then that the woman's intentions for taking Soraya became clear. She was forced to have sex in exchange for money. The woman took all the money, leaving Soraya with nothing. Soraya had come to the end of her rope, and she called Hisham to come and get her. Together they drove to his place, and it was there that he told her he knew all about her life with the guide. She thought he would view her as a disgusting creature, but his response was just the opposite. Someone from the compound called her, and Hisham took the phone, saying, Leave her in peace. Forget her. You've hurt her enough. From now on, I'll defend her, and I'm quite capable of killing if anyone tries to harm her. Soraya stayed with Hisham for three days, overcome by his caring for her. Meanwhile, the women had called Soraya's mother and painted a totally inaccurate picture of what had happened. Her mother called her and said, I'm crushed, Soraya. You smoke. You run away with a man. What has become of my little Soraya? A slut. A whore. I am so disappointed in you. Then it wasn't long before the security forces found where she was, but she was not prepared for what they said to her. They gave her the choice to go back to the compound 
or return to her parents. Of course, it was not a difficult choice to make. But after what her mother had been told, the reunion was frosty. Her father, however, welcomed her more lovingly. Soraya had thought that she could now start a new chapter of her life, but she was so sadly mistaken. They came to get her, and she went straight back to the guide, who said, What a slut! I know you slept with other men. There's only one solution left for you, to work under my command. You will sleep at home from nine in the morning until nine at night, but then I want you to be here at my disposal. You will finally learn to have the discipline of the revolutionary guards. And he then raped her again. Soraya had no idea what it meant to be a revolutionary guard, but she was soon to find out. She was allowed to be at home, but then she was summoned back to the compound whenever he wanted her. She soon found out that she no longer had a room of her own, that a new girl had arrived and the room was now hers. Soraya had to sleep on a couch. Her new role was to attend to any guests at the compound, serving them drinks and generally looking after their needs. So really, nothing much had changed. She was still a prisoner. Soraya was convinced her life was over, that she had no future, that she would forever be viewed as a whore and unworthy of any man. But one day there appeared to be a glimmer of light when her father had a plan which would see her life take a new path. Soraya's father called her and told her to get her passport and go and meet him. He told her that he would help her to get to France and start a new life. They drove to the French embassy and she applied for an emergency visa. Now all she had to do was wait for the visa to be granted. Soraya then went to see Hisham, telling him that she had to leave Libya. He pleaded with her not to go, telling her how much he loved her. She expressed her love back to Hisham, but told him she had no choice. Gaddafi would never leave her alone. She would forever live under his control. Soraya and her father were overjoyed when the visa arrived. He boarded the plane with her to France, and with the help of one of his friends, set her up in a hotel in Paris. He gave her some money and returned to Libya. Soraya was overwhelmed to be exploring the place that her mother had spoken so much about. She could hardly believe that she was finally free. She didn't have to worry about someone coming to get her to take her to that abhorrent tyrant. She walked around in awe of the city, watching the sophisticated women in their designer clothes, so free, so happy, talking, laughing, sipping coffee. It was everything she'd imagined it to be. But it was when she saw couples kissing that her heart sank, and she thought of Hisham. She phoned him, and he gave her news that made her overjoyed. He had also applied for a visa and would be coming to Paris. Soraya then happened to meet an African woman who was also from Libya. They talked about their lives in Libya, but of course, Soraya couldn't tell her about Gaddafi. The woman spoke about how wonderful she thought Gaddafi was saying, Gaddafi is brilliant. That guy is one of my heroes. You have no idea how fascinating I find him. With everyone in Libya idolizing Gaddafi, the woman wasn't prepared when Soraya described him as a crook and imposter. She couldn't tell her how she knew this, but it didn't matter as the woman refused to believe it. She then invited Soraya to an Arabic club and she felt at home having other Arabic people to talk to. When the club owner found out that Soraya was there, he made an announcement to the crowd that a friend from Libya was amongst them. He began shouting Gaddafi's praises over the microphone and even sang the same songs about Gaddafi, which she would sing at her school. Soraya felt like she was suffocating. She just couldn't seem to ever escape from him. Back in her hotel in Paris, she was frightened at living by herself and called her father's friend. He told her to come and stay with him, but that night he jumped into bed with her and raped her. Soraya was so distraught. Why did she have bad things happening to her? She just couldn't find peace and security anywhere. She fled from his house with all her belongings, scared and not knowing where to go. 
It was then that some policemen were coming towards her. They asked to see her passport. They noticed how scared she was, but said that she had nothing to worry about as her papers were in order. As the papers were handed back to her, one of them had slipped his phone number to her and gave her a wink. She felt like being sick. Zoraya then called the African woman she had met and told her about what had happened. She said Soraya could come and live with her. But many of their conversations were about Gaddafi. The woman just couldn't believe the things Soraya was saying about him. Soraya was getting so tired of talking about him all the time and trying to convince her that he wasn't who she thought he was. Eventually, she had enough and left. Soraya then met a man who offered for her to come and stay with him. She was desperate and agreed. But it wasn't long before he expressed his love for her. Soraya tried to convince him that she was in love with Hisham. And then once when Hisham called her, the man answered the phone. Hisham was outraged, believing that Soraya was seeing another man and wanted nothing more to do with her. Once again, Soraya had to flee. She then found herself living for short periods of time with other people she met, but nothing seemed to ever work out. Some were just so unkind to her, and others even stole things from her. No matter where she turned, she was being taken advantage of. Eventually, her tourist visa expired, and she grew increasingly worried that she'd be found out. But going back to Libya was not an option, so she just took her chances. She had managed to find a few odd jobs, but money was a constant issue. She couldn't speak much French, so her options seemed to be very few, and she finally resigned to the fact that she had no other choice but to return to Libya. So after 15 months, she was on her way back home, but so disappointed in herself, saying, It's so humiliating to admit that I let my chance go by. How is it possible? I placed my trust in the wrong people and made bad choices. I was very naive. I arrived in Paris knowing nothing of life other than the spineless perversity and negativity of the small world that had imprisoned me. I had no idea of the working world, of relations within society, of time and money management, of balanced relationships between men and women, and nothing about the ways of the world. After she returned to Libya, she found out that the guide's people had come looking for her after she left for Paris. They harassed Hisham, even bugging his phone. Hisham's friends had all denounced him, saying that he was the lover of one of Gaddafi's whores. Soraya was disappointed in herself that Paris failed, but not nearly as disappointed as her father was. He said to her, Why did you come back? Why are you here sticking yourself in the lion's mouth? Why, Soraya? I was ready to take any risk, ready to die so that you could be saved. But here there's nothing I can do to protect you. I managed to find you shelter in a free country and you ruined your chance. Although she tried hard not to think about it, she knew the guide's people would eventually come for her. They found her in her mother's salon and took her back to the compound. One of the women said to her, I know other girls who went abroad to be whores like you. So pathetic. No honour, no loyalty, no values, no backbone. Gutter snipes who come back to see Papa with their tail between their legs. Soraya then snapped and began hitting her. Mabruka then appeared and screamed at her to stop. But Soraya said, oh, you just shut up. Mabruka was taken aback. No one had ever spoken to her like this. Another woman came in after hearing the commotion and slapped Soraya. She was sent to a hot, small room without any windows and only a mattress. Later, the guide called for her. He had been informed about the incident and said to her, I like that. You are a wild beast. Oh, I really like that. That fury inside you, that passion. And once again, he violated her. It was now 2011 and Soraya had been held hostage in the clutches of the guide for five years. She was now 20 years old. So much had happened in her short life. As her family had expressed their disappointment in her, she decided to leave and go and live with Hisham. 
although he had been upset that she had been with the other man, she managed to convince him that it had been totally innocent. It was around this time that Soraya began to notice that public opinion started to turn against Gaddafi. Many people held demonstrations. They were no longer scared to speak out, and she was so happy that they were finally seeing what she knew for so long. The Arabic news channel Al Jazeera featured numerous news reports of the unrest, and Soraya was thrilled at what she was witnessing. But then she found out that Gaddafi's men sought to eliminate some of his so called troublesome girls and that she herself was in danger. They came to her house, threatening her parents to tell them where she was. Hisham arranged for one of his friends to take Soraya over the border to Tunisia. From there, she watched as Gaddafi's 40 year reign was coming under attack. It was in February 2011 and peaceful protests began against Gaddafi's regime. But the situation escalated when Gaddafi's security forces killed hundreds of protesters over a few days. The situation progressed into a full-scale civil war between those loyal to Gaddafi and anti-Gaddafi rebels. Gaddafi refused to concede power, saying he would rather die a martyr than step down. Gaddafi's government began losing hold of many parts of Libya. Gaddafi announced that he was in hiding and that no one would ever find him. The US President Barack Obama signed an order to freeze Gaddafi's assets and the UN Security Council imposed sanctions against Libya. Gaddafi was also referred to the International Criminal Court for alleged crimes against humanity. Gaddafi's youngest son and several grandchildren were killed in a NATO airstrike in Tripoli. Gaddafi sent a letter to Obama urging him to end the NATO bombing campaign. He then spoke on TV saying he would be willing to negotiate but would not step down. In June, arrest warrants were issued for Gaddafi, his son and brother-in-law for crimes against humanity. In August, Rebels captured two of Gaddafi's sons and now had control of 90% of Libya. Here is Soraya's account of when Tripoli was liberated by the rebels. She said, The people were in the street, numb, euphoric and relieved all at the same time. Women came out with their children, displaying the colours of our new flag. Men were embracing, dancing, firing off bursts with their Kalashnikovs towards the sky. Loudspeakers everywhere were broadcasting revolutionary songs and the rebels were welcomed as true heroes. The rebels besieged Gaddafi's compound, the place that had been Soraya's prison for five years. They looted his property, bringing out his possessions onto the streets for everyone to see the absolute opulence of his life in stark contrast to how the people lived. His photographs were ripped apart and stomped on, and much of his belongings were burned in huge piles. And here are Soraya's thoughts when she heard that he was being sought for crimes against humanity. She said, I've heard that the International Criminal Court had ordered a warrant for the arrest of Gaddafi for crimes against humanity. So then I put all my hopes on the strength of my testimony. I had to be heard. I had to tell my story and draw up a merciless indictment against my torturer myself, for I wanted to see him behind bars. I wanted to confront him in a last face-to-face, -face, look him straight in the eye and ask him coldly, Why? Why did you do that to me? Why did you rape me? Why did you incarcerate me, beat me, drug me, insult me? Why did you rob me of my life? Why? Then the date of October 20 came to be the pivotal day of the civil war. Rebels had finally found Gaddafi's hideout. They found him hiding in a drain hole. There is a very dramatic video of the moment when he is pulled out of the hole. Not long after he is found, the new government elects an acting prime minister and NATO officially ends its military operations in Libya. So finally, after nine months of civil unrest, 
Libya is again at peace. So, what became of Gaddafi? There is a very graphic and disturbing video of the moment that he's pulled out of the drain. Bodies of his dead men can be seen on the ground, and you see him being led out, surrounded by many men with huge guns. And the men are in an absolute frenzy, but of course you can understand why. For nine months, he had been in hiding, and to be the men who found him must have been exhilarating. But what happened in the seconds and minutes after his capture can only be described as barbaric. Firstly, you see the back of him on the video being led away. When the video is analysed frame by frame, it shows a man inserting some type of a stick or knife into Gaddafi's rear end. He is wearing trousers and you can see that he is clearly bleeding. Then they start to beat him about the head and his head and clothes become totally covered in blood within a short space of time. He's put onto the back of a truck and the crowd is going absolutely crazy. They are screaming and firing volleys of bullets into the air. It's clear that he's in a very bad state, but somehow still alive. Someone is filming all of this on a phone, and you see the left side of Gaddafi's head totally covered in blood. It seemed to me that there was a hole in the side of his head, which looked like it could have been a bullet wound. Under the Geneva Convention, the abuse of prisoners is a crime, but these men clearly didn't care about any of that. You will now hear the audio of the men in a frenzy after he is captured. Then, not long after his capture, he is seen laying on a gurney with people around him taking photos and video. It is not clear at what point he actually died, but it was determined that he had a gunshot wound to the head and abdomen. His body was kept for a few days in an industrial freezer, and the public were allowed to come and view him. The freezer was in a shopping centre and was used to store vegetables and other perishables. People said they wanted to come and see him to make sure it was actually him and that he was finally dead. He was then buried in a secret location. For me, as I looked at the images and videos of his capture, it was hard to reconcile whether what happened to him was justified, particularly after reading Sarai's story. A part of me was saying that he deserved everything he got, but then my humanity said, no, we can't condone this barbarism. And here is how many people viewed him being sodomized. Someone was quoted as saying, so many Libyans felt they'd been avenged by this symbolic gesture. Before his appointment with death, the rapist was raped. So let's now see how Soraya reacted after his death. She said, no matter what I say, no one will ever know where I come from or what I've been through. When I saw Gaddafi's body displayed to the crows, I felt a brief moment of pleasure. Then I had a terrible taste in my mouth. I had wanted him to live, to be captured and put on trial, to be judged by an international court. I wanted him to take account for his actions. Soraya's account of her five years as a sexual slave was the first time that one of Gaddafi's women had given a personal account of what went on inside the compound. So how do we know about her story? It was during 2011, when the civil war was raging, that a French journalist named Annick Gojan went to Libya to cover the uprising. She didn't specify how she met Soraya, but Soraya spent much time with her telling the whole story of her life imprisoned with Gaddafi. Anik then wrote a book about Soraya's account called Gaddafi's Harem, which was released in 2013. It was through reading this book that I was able to give such a detailed account of Soraya's story. After the book was released, her story spread far and wide, 
but pro-Gaddafi websites completely denied her account. And so, paradoxically, Libyans didn't deny the atrocities that he caused, his tyranny and his corruption, the tortures and the murders, yet people could just not believe that he could enslave so many girls. Anik was also able to find other girls who were prepared to tell their stories, but she also came across many people who tried to persuade her to drop her investigations. They said to her, Gaddafi is dead. Why do you want to dig up his shameful secrets? And here is a quote from the Minister of Defence who she met. He said, It's a matter of national shame and humiliation. When I think of the affronts perpetrated on so many young people, soldiers included, I feel nothing but disgust. I assure you, the best thing to do is to keep quiet. The Libyans feel collectively tainted and want to turn the page. During her time in Libya, Anik decided to go and visit Soraya's school. Many schools were either totally destroyed or partially damaged during the unrest. Those schools that could still operate had to accept students from elsewhere who didn't have schools to go to anymore. Even those that did operate had to do their best with reduced staff as some teachers never came back to teach. Anik arrived at Soraya's school hoping her principal would be there. But unfortunately, there was a new principal. She asked him about that day that Gaddafi visited, how Soraya had been chosen, and went on to be his slave. Here is his response. That's untrue, outrageous, idiotic. Your story makes no sense. Colonel Gaddafi never visited any schools. And when Annex said that she had met with Soraya, he said, it's false. I tell you, completely false. Then she was able to meet with some of the female teachers and they confirmed Soraya's story. They had been at the school on the day he visited. They confirmed that the former principal was a Gaddafi supporter and that sadly the new one was the same. Everybody knew how abhorrent Gaddafi was, but no one was game enough to say it. And what about the other countless women and girls who had been under Gaddafi's control? To have a normal life was extremely difficult. They were not fit to be married, and single women were shunned. Some resorted to going abroad and having surgery to have their hymens restored. One of Gaddafi's bodyguards even went on television and was brave enough to reveal the whole truth about Gaddafi and the sexual slavery of the girls and women. She made an impassioned plea. No more pretending now. Enough hypocrisy. Wake up, people of Libya. But then she went into hiding after receiving death threats. So what happened to Soraya? After the war ended, she was taken by some of the rebels to their military academy and she told them her story. They promised her justice. She was then given temporary housing where she was supposed to be safe, but she was raped by one of the rebels. She then fled and went into hiding. Here are Soraya's final words. There you have it. I have told you everything. For me, this was something I had to do. But believe me, it wasn't easy. I still have to battle with an overload of feelings that are clattering away inside my brain and won't give me any peace. Fear, shame, sadness, bitterness, disgust, rebellion. Some days these feelings coalesce into a strength that brings me back a little confidence in my future. But more often they overwhelm me, push me into a well of sadness from which I don't feel I can emerge. A girl who doesn't deserve to live, according to my brothers, whose honour is at stake. Cutting my throat would make respected men of them. I'm a deadbeat, so who would cry over my death? I would like to make a life in the new Libya, but I wonder if it's possible. Sadly, that's all I know about Soraya. It's been nine years since the fall of Gaddafi, but I wasn't able to find out any more about her, except that after his death, her relationship with her family deteriorated. I'm not even sure if Soraya was her real name, but I'm guessing that it was just a fake name. Now, while I was researching this story, it occurred to me that Gaddafi's wife was never mentioned except for when her mother went to do his wife's hair. So it seemed that Soraya never came into contact with her. 
and it makes me wonder how much his wife knew about what was happening. I would say that she probably had her own part of the compound, but you'd have to think that she knew about everything. But it was probably just accepted that powerful men like him did that sort of thing. So I did some research about her, and she was Gaddafi's second wife. They had eight children together, and she was the first lady of Libya for the whole 40 years that he was in power. Some of Gaddafi's sons were killed in the unrest, and his wife and the remaining children fled to the country of Iran, where they were given political asylum. So throughout this story, we saw how Gaddafi was held in such great esteem, not only in Libya, but also other African and Arab countries. While the West portrayed him as an evil dictator, his rule in Libya had reportedly led to significant advances in social, political and economic matters. But I guess it depends on who you listen to. I read a particular article by an African journalist. His article started with this sentence. Was Gaddafi a dictator? Yes, however, he also had a heart for his country and the world conveniently skips that part every time. Well, after listening to Soraya's story, would you say that he had a heart for his country? He certainly didn't have a heart for girls and women that he abused. This journalist's article then went on to list his achievements. Apparently under Gaddafi, education and medical care was free. However, I read that the quality was appalling. This journalist defended Gaddafi by saying, no system is perfect, and that most are imperfect and still expensive. Hmm. He also stated that Libya had no external debt and millions of dollars in reserves, and he compared that to the trillions of dollars of debt in the US. Libya apparently also had the third lowest price of petrol at the time of Gaddafi's death. The journalist also contended that gender equality was a reality in Libya. Apparently, women were free to work and dress as they liked and were not repressed. However, this seems to be totally at odds with what we read in Soraya's story. So for me, it was very hard to get to the truth. But through Soraya's personal story, we get a clear picture of what he was like as a man in terms of how he viewed and treated women. So how can I put into words what this poor girl went through? How absolutely crushing it is that it was her attractiveness which led her down this path. Her school obviously picked the most attractive girls to present to Gaddafi and she was so excited when he patted her on her head. But little did she know that this was the signal to his minders that she was the one he wanted. When you look at photos of Gaddafi, you see him always surrounded by his female bodyguards, and Western journalists came to call them Gaddafi's Amazons. But what the rest of the world didn't know is that they were also his sexual slaves, and many of them started as Soraya did as young girls. And if they served him well, they would rise through the ranks. And I also read a very interesting story about Donald Trump. In 2009, which was only a few years before his demise, Gaddafi visited New York with an entourage of about 350 people. He needed somewhere to put up his huge Bedouin-style tent and wanted to erect it in Central Park, but was denied. Various other localities turned him down and no hotel would let him stay there. But he eventually found an estate that agreed to house his tent. And that estate was owned by none other than Donald Trump. So that's the end of Soraya's absolutely tragic story. I just haven't been able to get her out of my mind. I'm going to try to continue looking for her. And hopefully one day that she has the strength to fully reveal herself and her story rather than to continue to remain in hiding. It's such a tragedy because she did nothing wrong. She had all of this perpetrated upon her, yet she feels like she cannot show herself. Her name isn't even Soraya. Who knows what her name is? 
the things that happen to women around the world makes us realize how lucky we are in the places that we live and where I live in Australia. I just admire this poor girl so much and I really hope that one day I can see her totally out in the open. And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. A child's life is like a piece of paper on which every person leaves a mark. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple. 